All right, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. So now, let's see how, let me, I'll show you how this works on, a, on the nonverbal communication. Watch me now. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. See how I, I, that's the pause while I bring up my cup so you do something. Yeah, it's actually, it's not just a prop, it's a tool. The book of Acts, the series that we're in is called The Spirit-Filled Church. And we have two primary objectives as we walk through this. We want to learn what it meant so that we can live what it means. And we should, by the way, heads up, that's not just for the book of Acts. You can read all of your Bibles that way. You can read the book of Deuteronomy that way. Uh, I'm not saying numbers, but Deuteronomy. (laughs) Passage we're in this morning is Acts chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 all the way through verse 24. And here's what we want to learn what it meant and live what it means today. Are you ready? Here's what we want. There's the big idea. The Spirit-filled church praise. All right, seven of us already agree. Hopefully by the end, everybody's going to agree. Let's try it again. The Spirit-filled church praise. Let's, Let's walk through this portion by portion. First of all, let's ask why in this passage, why did they pray? Verse one, about it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. It was about this time. What time? Oh, that time. It was about the same time that we've been at the rise of the church in Antioch and the and the the and with the in in conjunction with or in parallel with the with, with the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Luke's Luke's narrative is moving forward and so now this is about 10 years after Pentecost. Kind of just kind of cool to know Chapter 12 is 10 chapters after 2, and it's about 10 years after. And look at that. 10 years later, the Spirit-filled church still prays. Wouldn't it be super if 2,000 years later? That was for you to say, oh, we should still be praying. Okay, so it was about this time King Herod does, and what he does, and King Herod is an Edomite. That means he is a descendant of Esau. And, uh, the, and he, was, he is appointed, the, the Herods uh, inherited a kingship. This is King Herod Agrippa. And uh, he, he they, the Jewish people resented being ruled by Edomites. They did not appreciate that. Uh, but most of the time, the Herods, uh, knowing that they were resented, uh, acted favorably toward uh, the Jews. Herod was, Agrippa was no exception. He was a, a pious observer of Jewish traditions, and pertaining to this story, he was a ruthless suppressor of minority groups whenever they became disruptive. And 10 years after Pentecost, this sect, this group called the way was getting in the way. And Luke tells us that Herod intended, he purposed the different versions, even the, old, even the authorized King James, some of these other versions. Uh, NIV says persecute, but uh, that word is thrown around so much now it almost loses its edge. So let's hear what, what the, the, the vibe here is. Herod intends to do harm, to vex 
he intends to injure. Specifically, he intends to do evil against some who belonged to the church. Luke is not hesitant in his writing to identify the influence of Satan in political realms, political spheres. And in that way, Luke does provide sort of a balance for us, whereas Paul writes idealistically of the state. And it's important that we recognize he's writing idealistically, not absolutely. Paul will write, hey, you know, honor the state. They, they, he says the, the state has the sword to punish evil. Where Luke is showing us that Herod has a sword and he's using it to do evil. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Man, I am just not. Look, it's in all caps. It has two exclamation marks. He had James put to the sword. This is, I know it's hindsight, so for you it's like, well, yeah, we heard that. But try to be in the moment. This is a really big deal. Peter, James, and John. These are the three amigos. This is what tradition, history, whatever tells us that these are the, the inner circle. This is the people that are with Jesus. They're with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They are there watching Jesus be transfigured into brilliant light. They are there seeing Moses and Elijah show up talking with Jesus. They are there. They see the cloud. They hear the voice. Peter says something dumb. James doesn't. Peter, James, and John go to Jairus' house and they, and they watch as Jesus kicks out all the fake mourners and he grabs a girl who is dead and pulls her out from death and back to life. This is Peter, James, and John. This is James and John, the sons of thunder. This is years of relationship and experience and affection. And in a moment, he's gone. He's beheaded. This is a punishment reserved for murder or for the apostate. So Herod is demonstrating that this James, who's one of the leaders of this way, is an apostate. You might think that Luke would have taken time to reflect. He's a good writer that Luke might have taken time to reflect and lead us into the the shock and the horror and the grief and the mourning. And and it would have been easy for Luke to say, and the the church grieved and and mourned for James' loss and all of the things. That would make sense to honor James. Why not? Because before shock could even take Before mourning could even begin, verse 3, he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, and he proceeded to seize Peter also. It went from bad to worse. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. This is a festival that that was in remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. It lasted a week. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, Herod intending to bring him out for public trial after Passover or after the festival. Why? Because traditionally you, it, was, it, was, it was not acceptable to execute people during that festival. 
So for a week, this is where Peter would have stayed. The bloodlust from James's murder fueled the capture of Peter. And, and he is now in prison with four squads of four guards. Not necessarily 16 at one time, probably four guards rotating every three hours. And Peter is awaiting public trial and certain execution. This is, they are, this is, they, this is a time where the church feels somber. There's this, the, the text is heavy, and this communicates the idea that this is hopeless. And then we have verse 5. So... Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Things were bad. Things were bad. (laughs) Things were bad, but the church prayed. Let this be heard. Regardless of what is happening, whether there is threat whether there is crisis, whether there is tragedy or opportunity, let the church pray. If we miss this emphasis in the book of Acts, we may as well not read the book of Acts. The thing, the thing that hinders evil, the thing that promotes good is this one thing. The church prayed. And Luke here in this one verse juxtaposes power. Power of the state, power of Herod, and power of the church. Herod exercises his power with authority and chains and guards and a sword. And the church, prayer. Prayer is the only real weapon of the church. But exercised rightly, it is more than enough. God's presence and his power and his providence and our prayers always go together. How did they pray? They prayed earnestly. They prayed, the language suggests, in a, this is, it sounds like this, they prayed stretched outedly. They prayed fervently. They prayed together. And they prayed continually. The spirit-filled church prays or it's not the spirit-filled church. What happened because they prayed? Let's keep going, right? Verse 6. What happened? Well, they, but the church was praying. Well, what happened? Verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. The night before, what is this, six nights in prison? They, had to, they were praying for six days, Peter in prison for six days, and the night before... Something's about to happen. Anybody ever tell you that they ever hear people say God's, God's always right on time? You know why God's always right on time? Because he's the boss. Whatever time he shows up, that's the right time. I'll never tell the boss. He, boss is never late. The boss is never early. The boss is the time when the boss gets there. But here's what you know about the boss. He's a really good boss. The night before, the night before, what's, I mean, at least let me just say this, don't give up. If you're praying and it's the night before, don't give up. Don't put it to bed. Don't pack up. Don't flee. Don't give up. And Peter is sleeping between two guards chained to both. Very popular response to this is to say, look at Peter. He's not stressed. He's not fretting. He's not fussing. He's totally at peace. He's sleeping. Maybe. 
It preaches pretty good. If you like it, take it. Run with it. Love it. But also, it's been a week in prison, in the dark, in change. He's exhausted. He's probably prayed every prayer, sang every song, told every joke, tried to bargain, tried to do whatever. He's out. He's out. He's got nothing left but sleep. Wiped out, chained between two guards, guards in front of him, guards, more guards. The idea probably here that Luke is painting for us is of hopelessness and that there is no human potential for escape or change. And then verse 7. Suddenly. Somebody say suddenly. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put, your, put on your clothes and your sandals. And Peter did. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. That's how angels talk. <laughs> and Peter followed him out of the prison. He had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. I mean, listen. He is, it is so... I mean, don't, I'm not trying to overpress this, but it's so, everyone, it, the, the bad news is so bad, he's assuming, well, this probably really isn't happening. Probably just having a vision before it all ends. And they passed the first and the second guards, and they came to the iron gate leading to the city, and it opened for them by itself, and they went through it, and while they walked through one, uh, one length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Suddenly. This story begins and ends with suddenlies. And suddenlies preach pretty well. This word suddenly, behold, it means something happened without warning. Something that happened almost without any sort of expectation. One of the first time we hear a suddenly in the book, and when Luke writes, it's at Christmas time. Little shepherds minding their own business, then a suddenly. And also light comes. He, Luke loves light. Luke says angels come, and then light comes where it's dark, where it's hopeless, where it's been this way for so long, whether it's shepherds saying, well, it's been this way forever, never going to change. Or it's Peter in prison in a dark, cha- in a dark prison. This isn't going to change. There's no hope. Angels show up. Suddenly, light shines in the darkness, and hope has dawned again. This isn't always the way the Lord works, but we should never dismiss the real possibility of a suddenly right in the middle of our midnight. An angel of the Lord appeared. Do you know? Do you believe in angels? The book of Acts has a lot of them. I'm thankful for them. Their help, I'm glad for their help. Do you know that they helped the church? How many we need help? Thank you, Lord. I'm thankful that they're there to help. This angel shows up, and he leans over Peter, and he sings him a sweet song. He does not. He struck Peter on the side. One translator said he kicked him. Why would he kick Peter? Well, it's Peter. He might have had it coming. Angel struck him on the side. Says, get up. And when he gets up, his chains fall off. That's good stuff. 
James fell off. Didn't do anything. James fell off. Then, then, then the angel says, now get yourself dressed. Wrap that robe around you and let's go. Peter thinks he's having a vision. They walk past guards. They walk past gates. And then the angel leaves just as suddenly as he came. Angels are a great help. I think it would be, it would be good for our meter to believe for their help. But let this story remind us of two things. They're a big help, but they do not work for us. They help us. They do not work for us. Angels have a boss. Shama. They may wake you. They may kick you. They may break off your chains. But you will have to put on your own shoes. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angels and rescued me from Herod's clutches from everything the Jewish people were hoping to happen. And when this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. We're getting a little bit more hint of where Mark's going to show up. Where many people had gathered and were many gathered praying. We say those three words out loud again. Many gathered praying. They were still praying. They don't have any idea. We gotta, I know it's easy. We read this in hindsight and we ho-hum a little bit. But if we can read it frame by frame. These people are gathered in this house that can hold them. We don't know how many are there. But all of these people are gathered and they're fervently praying. They have been praying on and off. We don't know. Maybe some people took a break, went home, camped out, came back. But they've been praying together for a week and they're still praying. It's midnight. Well, Pastor Dad better get that prayer meeting over 830. Who knows how late it is? They're still praying. Coffee ran out. They're still praying. They prayed, and they did not cease praying. They did not give up. They prayed until. Somebody say, we pray until. They pray until. And they don't even know that while they are praying, the answer is already happening. This should really encourage us, but it gets better. Verse 13 through 15, Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. Her name means Rosebud, okay? When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening the door. And she exclaimed, Peter is at the door. And they respond, you're out of your mind. And she kept insisting it was Peter. When they said, ah, it must be his angel. His angel. They, 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 they believed in angels. They, they believed that, uh, that someone's angel would take on their appearance if that person had recently died. So that they thought, oh, it must be over for Peter. Verse 16. But Peter kept on knocking. Usually we preach that like, hey, keep pressing, keep knocking until you get your breakthrough. But Peter's just trying to come inside. <laughs> He kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were astonished. They were astonished. They had been praying for a week for this answer, and they were astonished. They'd been praying, hey, Peter's at the door. Now he can't be at the door because that's not the way we imagined our prayers being answered. We had a whole different narrative going on. We had imagined, we saw, we were describing, they were, oh, it's going to be a great trial, and then he's going to get in, he's going to get off, and then we're all going to have a picnic. They imagined the ends of their prayers differently, but God was already answering them. 
And they were astonished. Does that help anybody that, that God answered their prayers and they were astonished? It should help everybody in this room. It should, it should just help you relax a little bit. Because these are not super saints. They're human beings. Has anybody ever prayed and you got worn out? Has anybody ever been praying and sometimes you wonder if it's making any difference? Has anybody ever been praying and you're, and you're just a little bit tempted to maybe give up? Or maybe, you know what? We don't know. They were tired. Maybe their expectometer was fading. But here's what they did. They kept praying. Did they pray with, with perfect expectation? Apparently not. <laughs> but they prayed anyway. Did their prayers, add, did their, did their prayers uh, get answered exactly the way they apparently thought? But they prayed anyway. And here's the deal. It may not feel right. It may not look like what we think. But keep praying. Because no prayer is wasted. Verse 17, Peter motions with his hands for them to calm the heck down and send the original. And describe <laughs> how the Lord brought them out. He brought him out of prison. That's how we know the story. He told them the story. And then he says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he left to another place. This is, this is Luke's transition. He's reminding us that James, the brother of Jesus, is now rising to a place of leadership in the Jerusalem church. And Peter is going to fade away a little bit. For the most part, Peter is going to fade out of the narrative. Just like Jerusalem will sort of fade out of the narrative. As, as Antioch rises, Peter will fade. And another central character will, ride next, will rise next chapter. I won't tell you who. But Peter slips away. Then we have the epilogue, verses 18 to 19. In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had had a thorough search made for him and didn't find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. No small commotion indeed. The guards are executed because, according to the rules, uh, if a prisoner escapes, the guard guarding them has to face the consequences that the prisoner would have. So we know, again, the idea was Peter was going to be executed. But in case you think that Herod just got away with a whole bunch, <laughs> you already heard this. Um, in case you think that Herod, that Herod got away with killing James, imprisoning Peter, and killing, I mean, the guards got killed for something that God did. They're like, we didn't, we were right here, we promised. Kill him. If you think, if you think Herod's going to get away with it, Luke's not going to let that happen. He's not going to let our, he's not going to let us down. He's going to tell us some more things about how God works. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, Josephus, the historian, tells us that his robes were lined with silver or were silver sequins. <laughs> Herod was the first sparkle britches. <laughs> and that when he stood in the sun, his robe, the silver in his robe caught and reflected the sun. So if you ever, if you ever saw Liam be Zeus and say, release the Kraken, right? And he was the shiny, there was Herod in his shiny silver suit. 
And he sat on his throne and he delivered a public address to the people and they shouted, this is the voice of a God. Give us our food. This is the voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod was like, that is right. Dig me. And then verse 23, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. What is with the angels and the striking? Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's not. Struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Josephus tells us the same story. It's in secular history. Herod's up there giving a speech, looking good, shiny, silver, sparkle, britches, robe. People applauding, wonderful. He's a god, and he collapsed. And they look around, and they say, nothing to see here. And it's, we- and it's weekend at Bernie's, and they drag him off. <laughs> they drag him off, and they, put him, they take him back home, and, he's li- and he lies at home for five days, being eaten by worms from the inside out. See that last line on there? Herod Herod gets handled. (laughs) Look, it may not work well. It may not fit into all of our flannel graphs, but here's the deal. God is not nice to those who try to be God. Luke reminds us that rulers can overstep their proper functions. And when they do, God will deal with them in his own way. And in, and in no small part because the church has prayed. And then the end result of all of this, all of this, this is the final word that Luke wants to give us. The word of God continued to flourish. The word of God continued to flourish. For us, the spirit-filled church prays. Why should we pray? We should pray anytime there is a threat and anytime there is an opportunity. We should, we should pray anytime there is crisis or anytime there is opportunity. We should pray. And how should we pray? We should pray fervently. And we should pray together. When the church prays together, they act like themselves. They pray in unity, in their identity as the the gathered temple of the Holy Spirit. And they pray in their authority, in agreement together in the name of Jesus, as regents of the kingdom of heaven on earth. And and, and, And we should pray until. We should pray fervently. We should pray in unity. And we should pray in perseverance. What can happen when we pray? Anything. James chapter 5 and verse 16 says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Our Pentecostal forerunners believed this about prayer. They believed that that they could bend nature to their interests if they prayed. They had a camp meeting and it was fixing to rain. They just figured, well, I would just pray. In short, they believe this, and this might, not us, this might not do us bad to believe. They believe that prayer can do anything God can do. And that since God can do anything, prayer can do anything. God's presence, His power, His providence cannot be separated from the praying church. 
spirit-filled church praise or it just isn't. I want, to enjoy, I want to enjoin you to pray. To pray in unity, to pray in fervently, to pray with perseverance. And if you short, and if you just a couple of weeks, we're a couple of weeks away from ascension, from uh, the end of May to, the, to the celebrating uh, Pentecost in June, those 10 days we set aside for prayer, the place will be open all those 10 days for prayer. I, I encourage you to pray. Go to prayer meetings. Pray in your home. Pray with your family. Just pray. Because the other question is, what might happen if we do not? At best, we may get some results from our very best efforts, but we will forfeit the results of the Spirit's power. And at worst, we will forfeit our own call and our responsibility to be accountable to Jesus. But the Spirit-filled church prays. Will you stand with me? Aaron, take us right into that song, will you? The Spirit-filled church prays fervently. We pray together. We pray with perseverance. Jesus to just commit to or recommit to being the spirit-filled church that prays. God bless you. Have a wonderful afternoon. Find your children. Say hello to some friends. 